Let us pray. Gracious God, come to us in these ancient words and bring us truth for today. Open our ears and enable us to hear your voice. Amen. Today's scripture lesson come from, comes from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, for the sake of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel in the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I am grateful that you have stuck with us through what is now four weeks of heresy. Though just to clarify again that in talking about particular heresies, we are, of course, also talking about particular orthodoxies or particular doctrines or what the church has come to understand as right theology. Sometimes, though, we learn just as much or even more about what we do believe by considering what we don't believe. So the first week we looked at Marcionism, and if you remember, Heather nearly had a coup on her hands with our children when she suggested she didn't need to read the whole Bible, just the parts she liked. Marcion argued that as Christians, we didn't need the Old Testament that it was full of the law, while the New Testament was full of grace and Jesus, and there was more than enough of that. Thank you very much. But that has never been the perspective of our tradition. We recognize ourselves as part of a larger story, and we recognize that God, through the entirety of scriptures, both testaments, is a God who does indeed get frustrated with humanity at times, but who also is a God who stops at nothing to stay connected and in relationship with humanity, declaring unfailing love for humanity. The second week, we looked at Arianism, 
Arius loved God with his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. And he elevated God so highly that he ended up arguing that Jesus was not really divine because he believed that would have belittled the God who created the heavens and the earth. God and Jesus are similar, he said, just not the same. Jesus is a really good human, but he is still just a human. The following week, we looked at docetism. Docetism swung the other way when it came to Jesus, saying there's no way that Jesus could have been human because humans have bodies, and bodies are messy and occasionally disgusting. And that would be demeaning to God. So docetism said that Jesus looked human, but he wasn't actually human. But neither Arianism or docetism made it long within our tradition, because both of them, in their own ways, sought to resolve a mystery that our faith insists is central to who we are and what we believe. We believe that Jesus was both entirely divine and entirely human at the same time. And no, we can't explain it fully. And no, we can't wrap our heads around it entirely. And that is where faith steps in. Both Arianism and Docetism were rooted in a deep love of God and a desire for people to understand more clearly the intricacy and nuance of God. But to push too hard in one direction is to suffer loss in the other direction. It matters that God's own self dwelled within Jesus, and it matters that Jesus was fully human with a human body. If we give up either one of those, that actually leads us to either a more detached God or more detachment from ourselves and our neighbors. And that's precisely where we get into dangerous theological territory because God walked on this earth to come alongside of us. And God, for a time, had a body. So every body still has a spark of God within it. So that's where we've been, and it has been a heady few weeks. So we're going to actually conclude this series this week, because if we're going to wrap up a heady series about theological correctness, the right place to do that is in a conversation about grace. Now to do that, we turn to Pelagius, a British monk, and his heretical legacy, Pelagianism. And in the interest of giving Pelagius something of a fair shake, I want to ask you a few questions. You can respond either with a show of hands or just in your own mind if you are not ready for such self-revelation. But I ask you, who here when you were a student liked to get an A? Or who here thinks that practice makes perfect, whether it's ballet or basketball or parenting or praying? And who here would prefer to avoid group projects because it is just easier to do it yourself? <laughs> and who here doesn't just believe but knows beyond a shadow of a doubt there is a right way and a wrong way to load a dishwasher? 
If you have had a moment of self-recognition in anything I just said, first of all, thank you, you are my people. <laughs> and second of all, you might have been Pelagius's people too, at least a little bit. Because for better or for worse, maybe for better and for worse, Pelagius had high standards for himself and everyone around him. He believed that perfection was actually possible if we understand perfection to be living up to every standard set by God. Because you see, he believed if God asks it of us, then it must be possible for us to achieve it. It would be unreasonable and unfair of God to do otherwise. So the Ten Commandments, for example, they are not just a series of ideals to strive towards. They are fully within human reach if we will just try hard enough and if we will just summon enough willpower and self-discipline. God made us, Pelagius believed, and God would not make us and set us up to fail. So it must be possible to live a sinless life if we would just do the right things and avoid the wrong things. The thing about Pelagius, though, he didn't just think that about himself. He thought it about everybody. And he thought it loudly and publicly. And here's why. Pelagius was in the church in the 400s. And that was not terribly long after Constantine made Christianity the official church of the state. And so Pelagius was in and around the church when the church was inundated with new converts. Some of them joining from a place of genuine piety, but others joining out of simple curiosity. Some joining just to go along with the crowd and some joining from a place of political strategy. The church was also overwhelmed by all of these people joining, and so they decided that it was better to say, come on in, and we'll teach you the faith along the way. They chose that rather than to say, you can't come in until you know enough doctrine and demonstrate that you're actually holy enough. And Pelagius felt that all of that when he watched what it was doing, it was leading to a watering down of the true faith. And so he doubled down on what he understood to be faithful living. If you are a true follower of Christ, he said, you will find it within yourself, the capacity to do everything Scripture asks of us. And doing everything that Scripture asks of us, he said, that is how you will be saved. Now that way of thinking rightly riled up some other theologians, most notably Augustine, the same Augustine known as Saint Augustine. Augustine agreed that as Christians, our behavior matters, that we are called to pursue righteous living. But then he took issue with everything else that Pelagius said. He said that as humans, we are fundamentally incapable of reaching God all on our own, and that we are utterly dependent on something called grace. Grace, he said, is divine assistance in doing what we cannot manage for ourselves. 
Grace, he said, exists independent of anything about us. Grace is a gift freely given, not something that is earned or accomplished, won or lost. Grace is the reason we baptized Molly this morning. Not because she has earned it, though she is cute. (laughs) We baptized her because grace welcomes her in the name of Christ. Now to make his point, Augustine turned to scripture. Jesus himself, he pointed out, said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In Romans, Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they are now justified by grace as a gift. In his letter to Timothy that Sarah read from, Paul reiterates again that grace is given as a gift. Though this time he specifies that it is a gift given before the beginning of time. A gift that the world has never not known. He turned to scripture, but then he also turned to actual life. And he asked Pelagius, have you ever known someone who is perfect? And by the way, are you yourself perfect and sinless and beyond reproach? Maybe not surprisingly, Pelagius ultimately had no satisfactory response to this. It has not happened, he admitted, but it is possible. And Augustine said, if that is true, the only possible outcome is that we live our entire lives separated from God until the hypothetical day when we might get it right. If we are responsible for our own salvation, if we are the only way we can earn ourselves a place in heaven, Well, Augustine pointed out that heaven would be desperately and despairingly empty, filled only with a very lonely God and angels singing to themselves. So ultimately, the church sided with Augustine, and Pelagius was declared a heretic. Now, aside from remembering the undeniable importance of grace in our lives, we do well to remember the motivation behind Pelagius's thinking. Pelagius really did believe that we were capable of being better than our history has ever demonstrated. And there is something hopeful and lovely in that. But Pelagius didn't come to his conclusions because he set out to reflect upon God or explore theology. He came to his conclusions because he was trying to protect the church. And that put him in the position of warning against anyone and everyone who wasn't acting the way he thought people in church ought to be acting. And in the grand scope of human history which by default includes the scope of church history. Voices who have sought to protect the church by keeping other people out have not been the voices who ultimately carry the day or carry the church forward. That is the legacy of grace, past, present, and future. But there is a final note 
Our actions do matter. That is where Augustine and Pelagius were exactly in sync. We are saved by grace, but we are saved by grace not to live lives in which we are casual and careless about everything. We are saved by grace, and we are transformed by grace, and when we understand that, when we really understand that deep within ourselves, our lives cannot help but reflect it. We asked Jesse and Graham earlier, do you understand your child to be beloved by God and a recipient of God's grace? And that question and the response given shaped everything else that happened in that sacrament. So what about you? Do you understand yourself to be loved by God and to be a recipient of God's grace? May we let that question and the response that you offer shape everything else that happens in our lives. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.